Heavenly Father, um, thank you for uh, the wonder of knowing you. Thank you for making yourself known, revealing yourself through um, the pages of Scripture and ultimately in the Word, your Word made flesh, um, our Lord Jesus. Thank you for uh, your Word that testifies to him. And we just pray uh, today that we would know something more about you uh, through your word today. We please soften our hearts to hear um, uh, what you have for us today and change us for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Corinne. John 17. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I have revealed to you those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I prayed for them, I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours and all you have is mine, and the glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that the scripture would be fulfilled. I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them, I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world might believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me wherever I am, and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you love me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known 
in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Well, thank you and good morning. Uh, it's wonderful to be with you again. Uh, it's great. I'm really enjoying my uh, Sunday morning drives down to Victor Harbour and this great opportunity to look at John's Gospel. Well, if ever there was a passage that was kind of too big, you know, this is it. There's so much in this passage. I don't know if you noticed that as we went by. We're seeing enormous concepts here. I've often thought that it would be a good idea to have the Bible reading before the sermon and then, you know, the sermon kind of outlines a few key points and then have the Bible reading again after the sermon so we could really understand it. But because that's not in the schedule, we're not going to do that today. But can I invite you to do that when we get home? Because there will be, I hope, as we reflect on this passage now, there will be more for you to see uh, as, we've, um, as you go home and read it again. So this is John 17. And let's ask for the Lord's help to give us insight. Lord God, our loving, supreme, heavenly Father, we pray for your presence with us this morning to show us what you want us to see in your word and to encourage us and to give us what we need to respond. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, my dad always wanted to have dinner with Cliff Richard. <clears throat> dad, if you're listening to the recording, I'm sorry, I'm going to tell everybody. You know Cliff Richard... You know, the British mega pop star of the 60s. Actually, he started in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. He just keeps on going. You know, he's still doing stadium gigs at the age of 78. You can even go to England this year in June, if you like, and see his Diamond Encore tour if you're a keen Cliff fan. But my dad and Cliff had a common friend whose name was Bob. And Bob knew how much Dad loved Cliff's music and how much he followed it. And, but he also knew that Dad had a real respect for Cliff for being a follower of Christ in a very worldly industry with a huge public profile. I think Dad just really wanted to get to know him. So, one year Cliff is touring Australia and Bob lined it up. Now, my dad is no one's groupie. But he was genuinely excited. The tour arrived, and to his utter devastation, the catch-up had to be cancelled. And I can't tell you the reason why, because I don't know. It was just one of those things. And I think Dad has finally stopped talking about it now. <laughs> My wife actually did meet Sting. He's the other big, long-lasting English pop star. There are actually more than two. But the, uh, they met at, the, at Adelaide Airport, and the conversation went a little bit like this. They were going through security, and he said, after you. And she said, thanks. And that was it, actually. That was... <laughs> but there was a Facebook pic and, of him walking off to his flight, and, you know. Who have you always wanted to get to know? A pop star, a politician a movie or TV personality, an entrepreneur, a successful person, an activist. Well, today's passage, John 17, has often been described as holy ground. Because here we eavesdrop via the recollections of the disciples who were listening in. We eavesdrop on the eternal relationship between God the Father and God the Son. Would you like to get to know them? 
Here we have Jesus talking to the Father. We're right in the middle and we're listening to his prayer. And so what does Jesus pray? What are his concerns and interests? What concerns and interests of the Father does he refer to or appeal to? And what does he ask for? Well, this isn't just any old prayer, of course. This comes on the night before he died, at the end of a lengthy conversation with his followers that we've been following for some time, over chapters 13, now through to chapter 17. And, and Jesus knows that these disciples going forward are going to struggle, they're going to find it hard, and he wants to shore them up. He's made promises to them about their long-term future. He said, you know, my father's house has many rooms and there's one for you. He's also made promises about their you know, near future, their soon-to-be future, that he would send the spirit, the comforter, the, the advocate for them. And now he turns from addressing them to addressing the Father in prayer, and it's out loud for them to hear. And what do you think he prays for? What is it that in this final hour of freedom, Jesus asks the Father for? Well, I want to break his prayer into two categories. And so if you're writing notes, you want an outline, these are the two categories. Prayers for himself, uh, which is it's actually just one prayer for himself, and then prayers for his disciples, disciples both then and now. And so the talk will be structured around those two categories. So firstly, category one, prayer for himself. What does Jesus pray for himself? This is right there in verse one. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. Striking, isn't it? Glorify me. What is that? What does it mean? I guess it depends on what we think glory is. What is it to glorify? Is it some kind of chest beating? Some attempt to promote yourself over and above others? I'm sure we've all seen that kind of self-glorification. In Jesus' case, uh, clearly not. Perhaps think of sporting glory, the coming together of a long period of hard training, a brilliant performance, and then some grand stage. You know, glory is a grand final kind of concept. It's not a training camp concept. It's what the winner gets, even if the opposition has played well. Or perhaps think of military glory, Great risk taken, courage and fearlessness on the battlefield, a decisive victory, and then perhaps bravery awards, glory. It's about being seen for who you are and what you've done. It's about strengths and achievements, not so much about failures. And if I receive the glory for someone else's achievement, it's not really glory, is it? We know it's fake. Jesus is asking here to be seen for who he truly is and for what he's done. And through that, he will bring glory to his heavenly Father as well, because he will reveal the true greatness of the Father as well as the true greatness of the Son who is sitting here at table with these disciples. Well, he helps us to understand all this in the, in the following verses, verses 2 to 5. In verse 2, the Father has, in the past, given him authority over all people. 
Think about that. And this authority is not something that he snatched. But through this authority, he has given out eternal life to those people whom the Father has given to him. So Jesus' authority, Jesus' glory here is connected to him serving. It always is. And then you flick down to verse 4. He's speaking in the past tense here about the work that he's about to do on the cross. You see, there's a little, it's a little bit tricky there. That work won't be finished until Jesus is actually calling out from the cross. It is finished. But he is so clear here, so determined that this is what is going to happen. The path is already set. He's already on it. He's almost at the finish line. So it's, it's as if it has already happened. He's able to talk about the glory that he has already brought to the Father through all of his work, not just the miracles and the teaching work, but also this great culmination of his work, which is the laying down of his life. In verse 5, he reiterates his prayer to the Father to glorify him, particularly restoring him to the glory he had before he took on human flesh. And in many ways, the, 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 this paragraph about Jesus' prayer for glory revolves around verse 3, right in the middle. All through John, the idea of life has been a key theme. Life comes from God. Now, if you believe in a creator, that's no big deal, is it? We, we obviously believe that's where life comes from. Of course it does. But this is more than just hearts beating and cells dividing. John talks about life as if it's almost a unique attribute of God himself, something that he possesses alone. In him was life. Four tiny little words, but so much packed into that. In him was life, he said in chapter 1. And he shares that life with whoever he pleases. A little bit later on in chapter 10, Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Now, this is not just about big family meals and a relaxing retirement. This is about becoming connected to the very source of life in the universe, tapping into eternity. Not eternity as some kind of impersonal temporal concept but eternity as the personal one, the one who defines eternity, the Father who sent Jesus. And so in John's Gospel, life and eternal life, they mean the same thing. It's not as if life is what you have now and then eternal life is you know, going and living on a cloud when you die. It's about becoming connected to God now and never being disconnected ever. And so verse 3, Jesus says, Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Can you see the connection here with glory? I think it's the only of these five verses that doesn't mention glory, but it, glory is right at the center of it. God's glory is God's true reality revealed 
for the world to see. Knowing him as he truly is. Seeing and acknowledging God's glory and the glory of Jesus Christ is the way to eternal life. Knowing, perceiving. See, Jesus is a man, but he is also the son sent from the Father. Jesus himself is God. And if you know this to be true, you know God, Jesus is saying. It beats knowing a celebrity. More than this, if you know God, you have God's life, eternal life. That's his kind of life, the kind we want. There is so much more we could say about those five verses. But the one thing I want to emphasize is that in praying, glorify your son, Jesus is praying, Father, make it all happen. He's minutes away from walking across to the garden. Let's do this. I'm ready. In praying, glorify me, he is saying, send me to the cross. And his death will not be his failure. He won't be the runner-up in this. It will be his mighty triumph. It will be his glory. His Father will raise him from the dead eternally. And his people will exalt him as their Lord and Saviour eternally. Father, glorify your Son. So category two of Jesus' prayers is prayer for his disciples. What does Jesus pray for his disciples both then and now? It seems to me that there are four things broadly in this passage that he prays for for his disciples. He prays for protection, for sanctification, for unity, and for eternal company. We'll just go through each of those. Protection, sanctification, unity, and eternal company. First, protection. Jesus prays to the Father that he would protect us, verse 15. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you would protect them from the evil one. As we've looked through this farewell discourse in John's Gospel, Jesus has already indicated what he's going to do. He's going to leave the disciples, but he is not going to leave them on their own. He would ask the Father, and the Father would send the Holy Spirit. This is the Trinity at work here. The Spirit would be in them and would remind them of the truth about Jesus, would testify to everything that Jesus had done and said, and would convict the world in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment, as we saw last week. So here, what Jesus is asking the Father to do to, in protecting us is he's asking him to send the Holy Spirit. This is the request, if you like. In particular, he wants us to be protected from the evil one. I don't know if you regularly, day by day, think, I need protection from the evil one. Well, Jesus believes you do. The obvious way to protect the disciples might be to, verse 15, take them out of the world. That would be nice, wouldn't it? Separation. But if he did that, the rest of the prayer couldn't be fulfilled because there are those who were to, become, who were to come to believe in Jesus through the message of the disciples. Think about it. You and I would never have heard about Jesus if Jesus 
had taken his disciples out of the world. The Spirit and his strengthening us in truth, in the truth of the gospel, the Spirit is the agent of God's protection for us. That's how he prepared to protect us from the enemy. Think about how the Apostle Paul puts it in Ephesians 6. Put on the armour of God, he says, the belt of truth, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, which, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. The way the Spirit makes us strong is by the remembrance of what Jesus has done for us. And don't forget the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, the weapon for fighting back against the devil. Father, protect them, Jesus prays. Second, sanctification. Bit of jargon here. Verse 16, he says, They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify means to make holy. To set apart specifically for God. To fit out for God. To get ready for God, if you like. Jesus is saying the disciples don't belong to the world. They belong to God. And so, Father, mould them and fashion them to be like you, fit to be with you eternally. Our rebellion against God has so damaged and distorted us that it has made us unfit for God's company. So what does he do? Does he say, well, you better get, you know, pull your socks up? No, he fixes the problem. He sanctifies us. He makes us holy. Now, you may, of course, have encountered Christians who you don't think are particularly sanctified, although they may have a sanctimonious attitude. They may think they're more sanctified than they, than they look. We, we've, of course, we all own up here. We are all hypocrites, aren't we? Anybody willing to say they're not a hypocrite? Go on. No, don't, please. We all have hypocrisy in our lives. But again, Jesus is praying for God's work in us. He's talking about the work God will do here, not your own sock pulling up. Sanctify them by the truth, Jesus prays. Your word is truth. And so, folks, if you believe the word of God, the Bible, the truth about Jesus doesn't mean you, may, you won't have questions about it. There are tricky bits. But if you believe the word of God, you are sanctified by the word, by the message that you believe. It's the definitive status that he gives you by nature of becoming connected to Jesus. And yet sanctification has two parts. There's the fact that you are already sanctified, which is in a sense, an invisible status before God that you're set apart of as one of his. But second, sanctification, being made ready for God's holy presence, is also an ongoing process. There should be a visible transformation that others can see. 
As Jesus says, you will know a tree by its fruit. Over time, our hypocrisy must go. Our life and behavior must line up with the holy status that God has given us. And of course, both of these works of sanctification are the work of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit, once for all in the eyes of God, makes you holy in connecting you with Jesus when you believe the word, but also the Holy Spirit transforms you over time, bearing in you the fruit of the Spirit. People should notice that you're different, and over time they will. So second, Father, sanctify them. Third, unity, verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. For anyone who doesn't think that unity in the church matters, Jesus is very clear that it matters a great deal for two reasons. First, our unity should be a reflection of the unity between God the Father and God the Son. He wants that eternal unity in God to be reflected in the way in which Christians work together. Notice the closeness of their relationship that he just puts again in just a few very simple words. He says, you are in me and I am in you. There's a little glimpse of the workings of what we call the Trinity, one of the more complex aspects of our faith. That God is one and also that the Father is God and the Son is God and the Holy Spirit is God. All of those statements are just as true as each other. The persons, Father, Son and Spirit, are not the same as each other. They are not three different hats that God wears. But they do indwell each other. What does that mean, to indwell each other? It's an idea of incredible closeness. They are in eternal relationship of love and affection for each other, knowing each other perfectly working together perfectly and yet still distinguishable from each other. We say God is love. We can also say God is loving union. Inseparable, unbreakable loving union. Jesus is asking God to make us Christians, the motley lot that we are, in some way, with each other along the same lines. You want to be a Christian? It involves becoming one with each other, just as the Father and the Son and the Spirit are one with each other. Being one with each other is part of what it is to be Christian. Second reason Jesus says our unity matters a great deal is that it is the vehicle for the world believing that God sent Jesus. He says, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. We know the power of Christian disunity to throw people off. If you're not a Christian, I wouldn't be surprised if this is one of the things that really bugs you, that Christians are very good at disagreeing with each other. 
We don't have time today to outwork all the implications of this. But the one thing we do need to notice is that Jesus is saying that our unity with one another comes from him. That's, he's the model of our unity. He's the source of our unity. He's the inspiration for our unity. He is the way to unity. We are not going to be more unified with each other by having lots and lots of meetings or playing lots and lots of golf or all the time trying to work out what our differences are and so on. The way we will be unified is by drawing closer to God together, drinking deeply of the truth together, so that as we draw closer to him, we draw closer to each other. And that's how we are unified. Fourth, and we're almost at the end here, eternal company. This is the fourth thing that Jesus prays for. Verse 24, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you love me before the creation of the world. Jesus wants your company forever. He loves us and he doesn't want to lose us. People matter deeply to God. You are so precious and so important. And he wants you to be able to see him as he truly is. It's not for his kind of, you know, head growing or something. It's because he knows how awesome it will be for you to see him as he truly is. He wants you to benefit from seeing the truth about him. His true glory, his power, his authority and his victory. He wants to fill your eyes with that glory and sustain you for eternity by, by seeing him. By being connected to the life source of the universe forever. This is not a proud man praying this prayer. He is about to walk out to the Garden of Gethsemane and lay down his life for the ones he's praying for. He loves us and he doesn't want us to miss out. Well, to tie it all together, it is an extraordinary prayer, isn't it? We've only just sort of skimmed the surface of it. What are your thoughts as you reflect on all that Jesus asks for you? Because interestingly, even what he prays for himself, in a sense, is for you, isn't it? To some extent, there's no obvious thing that you need to do as a result of this. There's something we need to hear. We're looking at God here. What did he do to secure eternal life for human beings? It's a reminder that being a Christian is not about trying to impress God or each other. It's about coming to know God. Who is he really? Who is this Jesus? Who is the real Jesus? As we listen, on, listen in on this prayer, perhaps we get a glimpse of just how much has gone on in the background on our behalf. All this is happening because God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish 
but have eternal life. You're seeing all of this in Jesus' prayer. If you've not come to believe in Jesus yet, why not today? It's all there for us. You may have more questions. Come and talk to me if you're not sure exactly what to do. But this is this, knowing God, knowing these facts is the door opening to eternal life. It's a good door to walk through. Amen. And uh, the best starting place for us, I guess, is to come to him in our own prayer. And so let's start by doing that now together. Our loving Father, we pray too, uh, although we, we know that our prayers benefit infinitely from what Jesus prayed that night. We know that his prayer you listened to and you answered and you are in the process of answering it even today and you will continue to answer it as you bring to fulfillment your extraordinary plan for the universe, climaxing in the glory of Christ visible there on the cross, at the resurrection, at the ascension, but crystal clear and extraordinarily glorious for us on the day we see him with our eyes. We long for that day. In the meantime, please strengthen us, protect us, sanctify us, unify us, and give us that same desire for eternal company with each other and with you. Our Father, we pray for any who are yet to put their faith in you, yet to believe this, and we pray that you would gently lead them into truth and lead them into eternal life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.